morning. It is such a privilege to be here with you guys this morning. Um, we're going to be in Amos 6 if you want to go ahead and begin flipping there. And, and as you're turning there, I just want to say thank you for your partnership. You know, when we stepped off that plane 11 years ago into a lot of unknown, it was such a comforting thought to know that we were not alone, that we had just an army of folks back here praying for us. Um, that you've continued to pray for us these 11 years. You continue to give to things like the Gift for Christ. You've sent team after team to partner with us. You even sent Jason to us for a week who almost got arrested over a goat. That was kind of nuts. Um, but thank you so much for your partnership in the gospel. What a privilege it is to do ministry with you guys. Well, we're going to be in Amos 6, and if you wouldn't mind, stand as we read the words of our Lord. So Amos, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, he writes these words to us. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Conancy, and from there go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Or you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seed of violence? Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him, Who is in the innermost parts of the house? Is there anyone with you? He shall say, No. And he shall say, Silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. The horses run on rocks, there's one plow there with oxen, but you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from level Hamath to the brook of Arabah. Let's pray. Father, we just ask this morning, you give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and Lord, you give us faith to believe. Would you do that for your glory and for our good? In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. We've all been watching this week the, the devastating effects of a hurricane. It wasn't that long ago that another hurricane, one called Camille, was bearing down on the coast of Mississippi. And there on the coast in a small city, a group of 20 people decided this was a great time to get together for what they called a hurricane party. As the winds began to pick up, a police chief went and, and warned them of the imminent danger they were in. However, he was met by a, a drunken crowd who just mocked him, just laughed at him until he begrudgingly had to leave. It was 10.15 p.m. when the front wall of that storm came ashore, with winds clocked at 205 miles per hour. Raindrops, at winds that speed, they just feel like bullets. 
The Gulf Coast was cresting between 22 and 28 feet high. And that night, on the coast of Mississippi, 20 people died. Clear warnings, obvious danger, and yet people chose to have a party. In our text this morning, we come face to face with with much the same story, except it's not a group of party goers, but rather it's the people of God. And it's not some police chief giving a warning, it's the prophet of the Lord. The prophet's name was Amos. He was a shepherd from the southern kingdom of Judah, who God sent to the northern kingdom of Israel. He sent him there during a time of unprecedented security like unparalleled prosperity and comfort and expansion. And Amos steps into all of that to deliver this message of impending judgment. He says in chapter 1, the Lord's going to roar out of Zion. However, with, with prosperity on the rise, with secure borders, his message fell largely on deaf ears. You know how the story ends. The Lord did roar out of Zion. Judgment came about 40 years after this prophecy. Israel fell, and the northern kingdom never recovered. This little book of Amos, it has so much to teach us today, where we're at. As we just want to ask ourselves, what happens when the people of God grow complacent? Like, what happens when the people of God begin to toy around with sin, begin to play around with religion? And what this sixth chapter shows us is that that kind of complacency leads to pride. And pride has all sorts of serious effects on us. Just want to look at a few of those. First of all, notice pride has a blinding effect. Pride just blinds us. Verse 1 says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. So we've got a people here who feel comfortable we feel very secure, and we want to ask ourselves, why is that a problem? What's the big deal with that? Well, you've got to know this Hebrew word that's translated ease. It's not just a relaxed state, but rather it's a security that comes with a bad sense. It always carries this negative tone. Every time it's used, it always implies arrogance and smugness. So we have to realize the ease that they're feeling in Zion is not some sort of peace-filled contentment and the security of God. No. This is a prideful smugness, and the Lord tests this. So we ask, where did that pride come from? Well, we look at verse 13, and it tells us, he says, You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? The people of Israel, they had some successful military campaigns. They had begun to think that their current state of prosperity, their current security was somehow fruits of their own labor, was somehow a testimony to their own military prowess. I mean, did you see how pride works, how it just blinds us to reality? How many times has God talked in this lesson? How could they possibly think that they are where they're at because of their own strength and their own might? I mean, how many times do we see this? You think of Exodus 14 when the people of God have been delivered out of slavery and they stand there on the banks of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his chariots are charging down on them, and they're so hopeless, and they're so helpless, they want to go back to slavery. And what does the Lord tell them in that moment? He says, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Like, that's your military strategy. Be quiet. Hush. Over and over and over again, this is the story that God is teaching them. It's the lesson they need to be learning. That it's not about them. It's not about their strength. This is about the Lord who's going to fight for them. But see, pride 
blinds them. It just blinds them. And what's so crazy is this is exactly what God warned them about in Deuteronomy 8. There, starting in verse 12, God says to them, Beware when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold is multiplied. That's what we're all after, right? I mean, they could have put above that section the American dream. This is what we all want. We want enough food to eat. We want a home to live in. We want a successful business. We want a bank account. How can those sort of things be bad? Well, God goes on. He says, they're bad if when you get them, listen, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. And just a few verses later, beware lest you stay in your heart. My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And that is exactly what we see the people of God saying right here. This is exactly what's going on here in the time of Amos. They've forgotten their God. They're, they're saying to themselves, look, all this security that we're experiencing right now, all this prosperity that we're getting to enjoy, we did that. Yeah, sure, God did some things for our ancestors, but, but what we've got now is we look out the comfort that we're enjoying now. This is because of us. And that kind of pride led them to think they were indestructible. Amos says what? He says they feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. They were blind to the imminent threat this little shepherd from the south says is coming down on them. They're party-goers laughing the night away, getting drunk while a hurricane bears down. They, they were so prideful. They were even so prideful to think that they had found a way to manipulate God. They thought they had found a way to use God for their own interests. I mean, this is what they saw the surrounding nations doing with their deities. This is how you would treat, say, Baal. You kind of treat him like a, a lucky charm. You, you go through these motions, you go through these rituals, but you do it so that you can get something. And Amos shows us that the people of Israel had begun to treat Yahweh like Baal. If you read through chapter 4, there's, there's a rise at this time, almost a, a revival-type atmosphere. A lot of religious activity going on. A lot of orthodox-looking things going on. Chapter 4 just shows us a lot of worship is happening. A lot of tithings going on. A lot of sacrifices are being made. There's a lot of offerings during this period. And yet God says in chapter 5, He despises their worship services. Because he hates the songs that they're singing. And God hates them because he sees through them. He saw through all their religious activity. He saw it was a facade because it never translated into actual holiness, to a transformed heart. At the same time, there's this revival-like atmosphere on the rise. The people at the very same time are descending ever deeper into unspeakable moral decay. That there's just widespread injustice from the very same people who know how to lead a worship service, who have perfect church attendance, that somehow separated their worship from their real life. That they've forgotten God had not chosen them because He needed their sacrifices. He's not like Baal. He's, he chose them, Deuteronomy says, because He loved them. His desire was never about rules and, and rituals, but it was about a heart that was being transformed and worship that would seek to know Him and love Him, not just get His stuff. Their most important calling from the beginning as a people had been to love the Lord their God with all their heart, 
with all their soul, with all their strength. They were to love their neighbors. They thought they could fool God. They thought they could trick Him by, by playing the game, by playing in religion. But see, that kind of surface obedience with no inward transformation, that's detestable to the Lord. God hates songs sung from hearts like that. And so here's the picture. We have the people of God. They've taken the blessings of God and they've used them to fuel their own pride. And it just blinded them. Blinded them to their sin, to the injustice around them. It blinded them to their calling. See, it was never about them. They were always to be a people who would be a conduit for the blessings of God to go to all the nations. And that's what God tells Abram in Genesis 12 when this whole thing gets started. God takes this pagan nomad with a barren wife and he says, From you, I'm going to create a people, and through them, I'm going to bring blessings to all the families of the earth. Now, here we are, so many years later, and the people of God are positioned for this like never before. They've got the resources to do this like never before. And yet, what do we see? They've turned this outward calling into an inward clinging. Instead of a conduit of blessing, they became a cork. They hoarded the blessing for themselves. They sat smugly in their safety and their comfort, while verse 6 says, Joseph is in ruins. They're at ease while their own people, not to mention the surrounding nations, are just perishing. And to make matters worse, verse 12 says, you've turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Not only were they refusing to be a blessing, they'd actually become a curse. They'd actually become the source of oppression. It's easy to look at them and say, how could they be so blind? How could they miss that? How could they miss this opportunity? And yet I wonder about us. I think about where we're at in history. That you and I, we live in a time of security and prosperity that is unprecedented, historically speaking. But has all this prosperity, and has all this security, has it driven us to a humble gratitude? Has it made us much more generous in our giving? But for a lot of us, has it, like the people of Israel, driven us towards pride? Has it driven a lot of us to try and use God like Baal? Sort of try to manipulate Him to jump through His hoops, to go through the motions, to, to come to church and say, look, I'm doing all this stuff, so there better be something in this for me. Like, I better see some tangible results from all this religious activity I'm going through. Maybe it's driven some of us to just sort of play at religion. I mean, could you imagine what would happen if everyone in here we give the same amount of energy and effort for the pursuit of holiness, like real heart-transforming holiness, that we all give to the pursuit of the appearance of holiness. Has our pride driven some of us to be so confident in our own strengths and our own abilities that we're just not that certain we need God anymore? I mean, when I, when I look around, all the stuff I've got, the security I'm enjoying, the comfort I'm living in, that's not from God. That's because of me and my work ethic. I've got what I've got. I'm where I'm at today because of me. See, all this prideful thinking, it will blind you. It will blind you to your sin, but more tragically than that, it will blind you to your calling as well. Every one of us in here who's a follower of Jesus Christ has been called to use their life to make disciples of all the nations. 
Charles Spurgeon says it like this, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Missions isn't some neat little thing that some families who couldn't cut it in America go do over there somewhere. Missions is about all of us, and especially about people like you. People who've been entrusted and given so much. I don't know if you realize that, but you have. I mean, let's just take this. That we get to sit here in a climate-controlled environment with little to no fear that someone from the government or a different religion is going to come through this door and shut us down violently any second. That we get to be here week after week and have literate, trained pastors faithfully preach the text to us. That you get to have a Bible in your own language that you can read. That you get to have fellow believers around you. That you have access to books and podcasts and music and radio stations, all designed to help you grow in your faith. These are things that your brothers and your sisters around the world, in large part, can't even fathom. So much has been entrusted to you. Tom Wells, in his book, A Vision for Mission, says, Those who know the most about God are the most responsible and best equipped to tell them. That's you. That's not Jason, that's not me, that's not seminary-trained guys. That is people who come to church on Labor Day weekend, right? That is people who sit in rooms like this week after week. You are the best equipped, and therefore you're the most responsible to tell others of him, to make disciples of all the nations. And, And I think most of you agree with that. But let's get real. I mean, the world's a big place. I mean, can we really expect... To go into all the little corners of the world with the gospel, that's, that's a huge task, right? It's going to take time. Yeah, I've been hundreds of miles deep into the bush in West Africa. I've been way off the beaten path, way off the roads, places that you didn't even know existed. But one thing I've noticed, no matter how far I've pushed into the bush, and I've gone far, I have never once beaten Coca-Cola there. I keep trying. But every village I go to, Coke got there first. Coke was invented in Atlanta, Georgia in 1892. And in less than 125 years, they have penetrated into the most off-the-map parts of West Africa. That somebody in Atlanta thought, it's worth whatever it's going to take to make sure Coke gets from here to there. Jesus gave us our commissioning. 2,000 years ago. He's given us all the resources we'd ever need to make that happen. He even gave us a picture in Revelation 7, a glimpse into the future that this is going to take place, like missions cannot fail. And yet still today, 2.9 billion people live with no or little access the gospel. 2.9 billion men, women, and children made in the image of God who will go their whole lives having never heard it's called grace. Never meeting a Christian who will know only enough about God, Romans tells us, to damn them for eternity. And it breaks my heart that every village I go to, deep into the bush, where everybody knows about Coke and nobody knows about Jesus. Don't we have a better message than Coke? Like, isn't the gospel better than share a Coke with Larry? Don't we have a message that's worth doing whatever it's going to take, 
whatever the cost, to get it from here to there? Or has pride just blinded us to that calling? Listen, I want you to hear me clearly. That doesn't mean the only way to be faithful is to take your family and move across the ocean. That's not at all what I'm saying this morning. But what I am saying to you is that all of us need to be asking the question, how do I leverage my life? How can I best leverage my resources to make disciples of all nations that it counts for the ultimate thing, that we would all be praying for that, we'd all be giving sacrificially towards that, and that all of us who can would, would at least consider going, maybe for a week, maybe for a semester, maybe for a lifetime. Don't make the mistake of Israel. Don't let your pride blind you and turn your gaze inward. Jerry Rankin he says, one of Satan's greatest goals is to get the church so busy looking internally that they never look up and see the nations. His goal is to get your heart so focused right here that you're just blind to the nations and to your calling. The Satan is totally content with people who have perfect church attendance records becoming more prosperous, living long, happy, safe, comfortable lives, so long as that blinds you your calling. Don't waste this opportunity. Don't waste what's been entrusted to you. You're using your life and your resources for this only task that truly matters. And what a joy. What a, what a privilege and an honor to attach ourselves that God's invited us into this. God doesn't need us. You, you ever start to feel a little too confident in your own abilities? Read 1 Corinthians 1. Paul goes to great lengths to show the kind of people God uses he says, people that are weak. God uses the foolish ones, the, the ones that are not wise. And then my personal favorite, the things that are not. If you track in with Paul there, it's like he's saying, you know, when I picture a big pile of nothingness, you're what comes to mind. Like, don't try that on your wife. That, that's not a compliment. God doesn't need us. We're not going to frustrate his plans. Israel and all her disobedience and her unfaithfulness didn't thwart the plans of God, and neither will we. But what a unique opportunity we have to attach our lives, to give our lives, to join Him and what He's doing among the nations. Don't let your pride blind you. Notice also pride has a binding effect. If you look through verses 4 through 6 of our chapter 6 there, Amos is going to great lengths to show us the stuff that these people filled their days with. It's all self-centered indulgence. And the picture Amos paints is one of people totally consumed with their own pleasure. It's luxury upon luxury, right down to their dinnerware and their furniture. I mean, they just fell in love with comfort. They became addicted to a certain type of lifestyle. And that addiction, like all addictions, turned them into its slave. It just bound them up so tightly that they could not find happiness outside of their stuff. It just captured their hearts so tightly that they couldn't have joy without their comfort. God says through Amos in 7 through 11 there that judgment is coming. And it's going to be severe. He says he's going to crush the house. And this judgment is going to reveal what they truly treasured. One thing I've noticed over the years is that crisis will expose your theology. I think better than almost anything else, crisis, it will reveal what you truly believe and what you truly love. 
what this judgment's going to reveal is that the majority of people in Israel did not even know their covenant God. How tragic is that? How tragic that the majority of people could go their whole lives, go through all these rituals, all these routines, and never even know the Lord. Because if they had known Him, they would have remembered that even in judgment, they hadn't lost everything. They lost their stuff, they lost their comfort, but they hadn't lost Him. They hadn't lost their promises. I mean, even chapter 5, three times the Lord is speaking to the people. He says, seek me, seek me and live. He's giving them a chance. Just repent, come back, I'm ready. Judgment is actually an act of grace in that it might wake them up, stir them from their slumber, call them to repentance before it's too late. But the majority of people didn't see it like that. So they would rather lose God and keep their stuff than lose their stuff and keep God. When judgment came, they lost what they truly valued, what they truly treasured, and it crushed them. They were hopeless. And for some of us, if we're not extremely careful, we can become so enslaved to our stuff, so addicted to a certain level of comfort that our greatest anxiety comes from even the thought of losing that. When we start to see anyone or anything that might infringe on that or take that away from us as our greatest enemy, as our biggest threat, it's that sort of fear, that sort of bondage that has kept so many people from going overseas. But then what does God do? When we've been disobedient to go in His kindness and His grace, He brings them here. God in His kindness and His grace is bringing the nations to you. You don't have to leave Bowling Green to engage the nations. God has brought them here. And I know you know that better than I do. But they're here from countries where had they remained there, they would have had no chance to hear the gospel. They would have had no chance to meet a Christian. They're here. I'm just pleading with you this morning to not be so bound by your fears that you would see them as a threat. That you would not see all the nations pouring into Bowling Green as your enemies. Because that's slavery. That sort of thinking is bondage. It's it's always going through life worried you're going to lose what you love the most. See, if you value Christ as your greatest treasure, you don't have to live like that. You can just throw off that yoke of slavery right now. John Piper says it like this, when we value Christ above all things, then when all things are taken away from you, you haven't lost what you value most. This is what we're reading in Philippians 4. It's what Paul is saying. This is the secret to contentment in any circumstance. It's what we've got to look up and believe and accept. It's that Jesus is just as glorious, He's just as precious here in this setting as He is in some cave in North Korea. That Jesus is just as sufficient for all your needs right here in a room like this as He is in some prison camp in China. That Jesus is just as wonderful and precious and satisfying here in a room like this as he is when you get kidnapped by Al-Qaeda in West Africa. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Will you believe that when God calls you or, or maybe your kids, maybe your grandkids to carry his gospel to one of these difficult parts of the earth, places where they're almost certainly going to suffer, possibly even lose their lives? 
home, one of my greatest fears is that God is going to call a lot of your kids and a lot of your grandkids to go there, and one of the biggest obstacles for them getting from here to there might be people who come to church on Labor Day weekend. It, it might be people who underline in their Bibles and take notes during sermons. It's going to be people who will treasure their kids' safety more than they treasure their kids' obedience to Christ. Are you going to be the kind of parent, the kind of grandparent who's going to cling to your desire to be able to have your family gather together at Christmas and, and come together at Thanksgiving and enjoy one another? Are you going to desire that more than you desire all the brothers and sisters from every tribe and every tongue and every nation gathering together, not around a Christmas tree, but around the throne of Christ, with one voice crying out, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Is that precious to you? Is he so precious that all of this, and I mean, all of it could be taken away and you'd still sing, On Christ's solid rock I stand all other ground, sinking sand. See, the only way you can sing that if your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. There were some in Israel who, who could sing that song even amidst the disaster. Amos line is going to show us that God in His grace, He preserves a faithful remnant, a remnant that would stand amongst the rubble and the ashes and still call on the name of the Lord. That even when they'd lost everything, they hadn't lost what they valued most. But tragically, for the majority of people in Israel, the most tragic part of their destruction, I think, is found in verse 10. And there you have the people of God walking around in the ashes, walking amongst the dead, and they're too afraid to even whisper the name of the Lord. They are shushing one another to keep quiet. They are prideful to the very end, refusing to call out the only name that could save them. See, pride will blind you to your sin. It will blind you to the needs around you. It will blind you to the calling of the nations. But perhaps most tragically, it will blind you to the only place salvation can be found. Because there's something more ferocious than a hurricane bearing down on every one of us. Paul writes in Ephesians that we are by nature objects of the righteous wrath of a holy God. That's what we all deserve. And that's what we would all get but God. But God showed His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So no amount of good works is going to matter in that moment. No amount of religious activity is going to account for anything. Your only hope is to cry out to Him who stood in your place in that judgment. The only hope is to call on the only name that can save. Don't let your pride blind you to your need for the saving work of Christ. And don't let your pride bind you to the stuff of this world. Don't settle for stuff that's going to rust and decay. Christ says, His kingdom is like a treasure that you find out in a field. And then you go in joy, not begrudgingly, not because somebody made you, not because somebody talked you into it. You go in joy and sell everything that you own. Everything you used to get so worked up about, everything you used to build your identity on, everything you used to think, how can I live without this? Now you see it's rubbish in comparison to the true treasure you found in Christ. Do you know him like that this morning? If you don't know this great treasure, 
like Jason said, there's going to be men here who would love to share with you about the treasure they found in Christ. But I wonder if many of us, maybe this morning, maybe you need to come and you need to pray a prayer that we pray over our kids every night. God, send my kids to the nations and don't let me stand in their way. Don't let me be the reason they don't go. Maybe you need to pray that for your kids this morning. Maybe you need to come and just confess you've been playing and pretending at religion for so long, and it's just masked a heart that just doesn't even know the Lord anymore. It's so far from Him. Maybe you need to come and confess that. Maybe you just need to come and say, for too long you've been putting conditions on your obedience. And today, you want to say, whatever you'd have me do, wherever you'd have me go, I'm yours. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that's going to look like. But I just want to say, I'm yours. Take me, use me to make disciples of all nations. Whatever you need to do, I'd ask, even in these next few moments, before we rush out of here, that you do that. Let's pray. And Father, we do just ask that, that even in this room right now, that you would move in a way, you stir our hearts, you expose our hearts, you show us things that we love more than you, you show us things that we're clinging to and we value and we treasure more than we do Christ. And that because of your kindness and your love and your grace to us, you would kill those things. You take those out of our lives. And we see Christ with, with new eyes, with new life this morning as our only hope, our only treasure. We ask that you do that in this room, in this church, that it would be a church that looks up, that sees the nations, a church that is not a place known for people coming here, but a place known for people being sent out from here. Would you do that for your glory, for our good, and for the gospel in Jesus' name? Amen.